Hi guys, it's Miss Staten, and I am back reading part two of The Lion Who Stole My Arm by Nicola Davies. So, you guys should have left off with some kind of like a cliffhanger. So, I hope you guys enjoy this next part of the book, and I will be back tomorrow to finish it with part three. Chapter 6. The next morning at dawn, Adelia was poking the fire with a stick as if she were stabbing something to death. He passed out chasing after that murdering beast, and now you're, take, you're taking him to hunt it? She shouted, are you crazy? For once, he, her scolding did no good. Issa stood his ground. Pedro fainted in shock, he told her quietly. He thought that I was the one the lion had killed. Pedro needs to hunt this lion. He's coming with me. It was almost the longest speech Pedro had ever seen Issa make in response to one of Adelia's attacks. He jumped away from the doorway on the hut to hide the fact that he had been eavesdropping. He pretended to play with his little sisters, who were making a little village of stones and sticks in the mud. Ready, Pedro? His father called. Ready? Ready? Pedro had been waiting for with his spear and his bedroll for half the night, and if he had to wait any longer, he was afraid he might just explode with excitement and pride. As they walked through the village in the slanting early light, people came out to wish them luck. Enzi and Samuel and some of the other boys ran after Pedro and slapped him on the back, and girls looked at him from under their eyelashes. He felt like a hero already. The tracks where Maury Pelumby had been killed by the lion, had been trampled away by human feet. But beyond the little marsh, they found some clear prints in the soft ground. Pedro touched one of the paw prints with his fingers. His lion had stood right here in this space where Pedro himself now stood. Only a few short hours separated them. I'm, I'm coming, Pedro whispered in his head to the lion. I'm coming to get you. The plan was to track the lion, then use the dead goat they had brought with them as bait to tempt it to come within range of their spears as they lay in wait. They followed the tracks through tall grasses and under trees all day, then camped out, taking turns to keep watch in the darkness and set off again at dawn. Early on the second day, they found tracks deep, dug deep in the mud at the edge of the pond. The tracks led up away from the band of trees and onto a long slope littered with rocks. The ground was too hard here to take an imprint of a paw, but Issa found other little signs, a tiny wisp of fur caught on a spider web and a sharp smell of cat when he put his nose close to a rock. Then late in the morning, it rained, a downpour like buckets being tipped one from another from the purple clouds. It didn't last, but it was enough to wash away every trace of the lion's journey. We'll lay a scent trail with the bait, from the place where I last found a good track, the top of this ridge, Issa said, you stay here. It's better if there is a little human scent as possible. The dead goat had gotten smelly. It oozed. Pedro watched Issa let the stinky liquid trickle over the rocks as he dragged the dead animal down the slope through the first bit of shrubby woodland and back to the foot of the tree. We'll climb up the tree and wait, said Issa. Pedro looked up to where the trunk divided into smooth gray branches, high enough to keep them safe, but not too high for their spears to hit the lion down but not too high for their spears to hit the lion down below. With two arms, Pedro could have climbed up there in moments. Now Issa would have to haul him up on a rope. 
Issa could not complain, but Pedro's heart stung. It took some time to get the rope around him on the branches, then around Pedro's waist. But once Pedro was in the tree, he felt more useful. Issa tied the rest of their gear to the rope, and Pedro holded it up. Pulling with his left arm and looping the slack away with his stump. Then Issa spread as much goat scent around as possible and staked the goat firmly to the ground so that the lion couldn't just grab it and run before they could have a chance to throw their spears. The preparations took all afternoon and the sun was sinking as Issa pulled himself up into the fork of the tree beside Pedro. Now, Issa said, we wait. Pedro drew the shadows growing long across the clearing in his exercise book, but soon the darkness spread and enveloped them. As he sat in silence beside his father, Pedro had to admit that inside the excitement and the pride he'd felt all day was fear. Chapter 7 Every insect in Africa seemed to be crawling over Pedro's skin, especially on his left arm, where he couldn't squish them. He knew he had to sit as still and as quiet as his father, but it was very hard. Pedro had never known before how long the night was when you stayed awake for all of it. By the time the crescent moon had floated halfway up the sky, he felt as though he'd been awake for a hundred years. A tiny scratching, scratching sound came from higher up the tree. Very slowly, Pedro tilted his head to look up and saw two bush babies silhouetted against the sky. They leaped along the branch together, holding up their arms as if celebrating each other. Pedro forgot all about the insects tormenting him. Issa's elbow nudged him in the ribs and he looked down. Moonlight streaked the space beneath the tree and with the dead goat, a dark stain at its center. Something was creeping toward it. Down the slope from the rocks above, a pale shape in the moonlight, a creature that seemed to be made of liquid, flowed between the trees and bushes, disappearing and appearing. Finally, it stood still and its eyes glowed as they reflected the moonlight. A lion's eyes. Pedro's skin prickled and he spoke in his head to the lion to make himself feel brave. Come closer, come to my spear. If Issa and Pedro had been still before, now they sat like stones, hardly breathing. Their eyes reached into the black and white of the world of the moonlight, out to where the lion stood at the edge of the clearing. Its glowing eyes scanned the night so that father and son wished themselves sunk, wished themselves sunk into the smooth bark of the tree. Above Pedro's head, the bush babies broke into a family squabble. They squeaked and chittered and rustled the leaves with their wild jumping. Pedro sensed the tension in his father's body draw even tighter as the lion stirred, and it turned its face toward the tree. Pedro felt the attention of its eyes, its ears, its nose, and even its whiskers searching the air between them. Bush babies, the lion concluded, just bush babies. Reassured now, it moved, low but swift and decisive, to the dark patch that that was the goat, and it began to tear it away with its mouth and paws. Pedro's left hand tightened on its spear, and he knew without looking that his father's right hand had done the same, but still they waited. The lion found that it couldn't carry off the goat. It was stuck somehow, but now the lion was too hungry and irritated to be suspicious, and it pulled at the bait again, ripping off bits of flesh, no longer noticing the bush babies rustling in the trees above. Pedro saw the spear in the lion's side before he knew that his father had thrown it. It stuck out, firmly lodged between the ribs. 
The lion staggered and snarled, a sound that ripped a hole in the stillness. Pedro aimed and threw with all his strength. He almost seemed to feel the spear strike home, piercing the lion's other side. Darkness flowed down the bright coat as if the night itself were bleeding from it. The lion fell, crawled a little way, then lay still. Pedro stared at the spears. My spear, he said to himself, thrown with my left hand. I've killed the lion who stole my arm. But when they climbed down to look at the body, Pedro's feeling of triumph leaked away a little. Was this his lion? He could not be sure, and without certainty, he could not feel triumphant. This lion was a female, a lioness, without the scrappy start of a mane that he remembered on his lion, and he was pretty sure that his lion had not had anything around its neck. The sad dead body at his feet was wearing a collar. Chapter 8. Pedro fetched help from the village, and at dusk on the fourth day, Issa and three other men carried the lioness into the space between the huts. Everyone came out to look at the body, but some didn't want to get close, as they feared the animal could come to life. Children and women touched the fur with one finger. Some giggled nervously. Some snatched their hands away in disgust. The man pushed the lioness's lips to look at its huge stabbing teeth, and then they popped the claws out of their sheaths. Mama Lago hit the body with a stick, then ran back to her hut crying. But the thing that made everyone talk and ask questions more than the beast's teeth, claws, and size was its collar. It was a thick leather collar with a kind of plastic capsule attached to it, and a message was written in worn letters. Please return this radio collar to the Lion Research Unit at Mandoon. Issa explained that the collar had been put on the lion by some foreigners who lived in a compound outside Mandoon. The capsule on the collar sent out a signal like the radio station that sent the news and soccer matches to the crackly old radio in Miss, Mr. Massagu's hut. And the foreigners could use the signal to tell that the, what the lion was doing. But this explanation just made people ask even more questions. If they could tell where the lions were, why didn't they just kill them? If they could tell what the lions were doing, why didn't they keep them from doing bad things? Mr. Massagu held up his hand for quiet. I also have heard, he said, that the foreigners sometimes help those who bring back their lion collars. They have powerful medicines and a big land rover that can take people to the hospital if they're very sick. I think it'd be a good thing for someone from the village to take back the collar. I'll do it, Pedro said. I'll go tomorrow. Perhaps the lion people would tell him for sure that the lioness they had speared was his lion or not. The lion people's compound was a long ride out of Mandoon. Pedro was glad to get off his father's bike and lean it against the sign that said, Mandoon Carnivore Research Station. There were two thatched huts and several tents. A battered-looking Land Rover was parked under a tree and a white van with a bushy, a white man with a bushy beard and a woman with dark hair tied in an untidy bun were peering into the engine under the lifted hood. A tall man, looking a bit like an older version of Pedro himself, sat in the shade with a laptop computer glowing on his knees. None of them noticed Pedro. Mr. Masicu and his father had told Pedro that the lion people would be pleased to get the collar. But now that he was here, seeing the huts and tents and the car and the computer, all devoted to finding out about lions, Pedro wondered how pleased they would be about a dead lion. For a moment, he thought about leaving the collar and just running off, and then he might never know if he had speared his lion. He decided to be brave. He stepped in front of the young man with the laptop. Hello, I'm Pedro. 
said Pedro, and I have a collar for you. The young man was named Ronaldo, and his two workmates were Beth and John. Beth was from Cape Town, and John was from New York in America. They were sad the lion was dead, they said, but they were all very pleased that Pedro had brought them the collar. They thanked him several times. They made him sit in the shade and brought him a drink of water and some cookies. They were very kind. The lion was speared near my village, Pedro explained cautiously. It killed a man named Mr. Maury Pemble. I saw it running away. The three lion researchers nodded sadly. We're very sorry to hear that, said John, but I would like to know, Pedro went on holding up his stump, if it was the same lion who stole my arm. The three re researchers looked at Pedro's missing right arm as if noticing it for the first time. For a moment, everyone was, was very quiet. And then John said, well, this caller might just be able to answer your question. Chapter nine. Inside the hut, Ronaldo connected the collar to another computer. He explained to Pedro that it carried a record of everywhere the line had been. While they waited for the collar to download its story onto the laptop, Beth showed Pedro some photographs of lions on another computer screen. Each lion had a name beside its picture and a little drawing of its face. This is how we identify lions, Beth explained, from photos in these drawings. We tell one lion from another by their whisker spots, their ears, and scars, and the size and color of their manes. And the color of their noses, John added. Tell us how old they are. The pinker the nose, the younger the lion. The blacker the nose, the older. We give all the lines we study names, Beth said. And then she added in a pretend whisper, because it's easier than numbers for John's old brain to remember. Thanks, Beth, John grinned. He pointed to one particular photo on the screen. That's Puna, the lioness this collar belonged to. John brought up a photograph of Puna lazing in the shade of a tree with four tiny cubs. Pedro had only ever seen lions slinking their evil spirits through the grass or snarling and spitting when a hunter had cornered them or dead. He had never seen a lioness with cubs. He had never realized that lion cubs could be so tiny and helpless, all eyes and fluffy yellow fur. Pedro had feared and hated lions all his life, but he was disconcerted to find that Puna and her cubs reminded him of his mother and his little sisters. The cubs were Sheila and Seti, Two girls and two boys, Samer and Angeny, Beth said, pointing to each cub on the screen. There's the last photo we have of them, about a year ago, when the cubs were almost grown. Beth clicked on a photo of Puna and her cubs, now more than half their mom's size. Not long ago, not that not long after that, we found Puna's two sisters speared by hunters, and Puna just disappeared, John explained. We guessed that something bad had happened to her and her cubs, Beth said sadly. Not as what, not as bad as what happened to Mr. Pemble, Pedro thought. At last, the collar was ready to tell its story. A map with colored dots appeared on Ronaldo's screen, and they all gathered around. There's your village, right? John said, pointing to a black dot on the map with the name of Pedro's village written beside it. The orange dots show where Puna went, and the numbers beside them are the dates, Okay. Can you see on this map where the attacks happened, P Pedro? It took a moment to figure out what the map showed, and then Pedro had it. There was his village with the trail to the river and the fields to the north, and there were the little marsh at the bend in the path. Pedro put his fingers on the screen. There is where Mr. Pemble was killed five days ago, and there is where the lion attacked me before the rains. There were orange dots all around the village. 
Hmm, said John, peering at the screen. Looks like Puna could have killed Mr. Pemble. He pointed to the dot right next to the village. See the date? Six days ago, right before the attack. She must have followed a bush pig into the area, said Beth. And when Mr. Pemble chased the pig, he ran into her. Beth shook her head. We've seen that happen so many times. But look at the dates on these dots, Ronaldo said, pointing to the string of dots at the top of the screen. This is where she was at the start of the rains, 10 miles north. She didn't move south until 10 days ago. So Puna couldn't have taken my arm, Pedro said. No, said Beth, but that means the lion that did is still out there and could be a threat to your village. John turned from the screen and looked at Pedro. Don't suppose you got a good look at your lion, did you? He asked. The drawing. Why didn't he have th Why didn't he thought of that? Why hadn't he thought of that in the moment? He'd seen the lion ID pictures. Yes, Pedro exclaimed. Yes, I did. He pulled his exercise book from his bag and opened it to the page where he had pasted the drawing of the lion. I drew it, he said, but it's not very good. John snatched the pitch picture from Pedro's hands. What do you mean it's not very good? It's a perfect ID sketch. Excitedly, Beth rushed to the other computer. Pedro, you're a genius, she said. Take a look at this, guys. Beth had clicked a photo of a young lion onto the screen, and John had Pedro's sketch beside it. Well, I'll be, said John. It's definitely the same animal. Ronaldo added, the whisker spots match, the notch in the ear. Absolutely, said Beth. John grew serious. Okay, Pedro, he said. This is the lion that attacked you. Pedro stared at the screen. The lion looked exactly how he remembered it. He shivered at the thought of its teeth grinding on his bone. And in his head, he told it again, I'm coming to get you, lion. But now it wasn't just lion. It had a name. It was one of Puna's cubs, Anjani. Chapter 10. The researchers decided to go talk to the elders of Pedro's village about the lion attacks. They put Pedro's bike on the roof of the Land Rover and some food and camping gear in the back and set off. The journey was slow. The road from Mandoon was close to the edge of the swollen river, and the flood had washed huge holes and ruts into it. The Land Rover kept getting stuck. Pedro helped John and Ronaldo push it out of the mud while Beth drove. Pedro enjoyed feeling like part of their team, and after an hour or so of struggling together with the Land Rover, he felt comfortable enough to ask them questions. Why do you and Beth and John study lions? He asked Ronaldo as the Land Rover's wheels spun in yet another muddy pothole. Ronaldo put his back to the Land Rover's bumper and shoved. There are lots of reasons, he said, but the biggest one is knowing what lions do to help people keep people safe from them. Pedro dug his heels into the mud and heaved. But why not just hunt them all and kill them and then people would always be safe? Because, said John, without lions to kill them... You'd have way more bush pigs after your crops. And, said Ronaldo, screwing up his eyes to push even harder, one day soon, lions will bring tourists and tourists will bring money. Lions could give our country so much. Anyway, said John, looking sideways into Pedro's face, I don't think you really want to kill lions, do you, Pedro? Just then, the Land Rover shot forward, dropping them all into the mud. Pedro was glad because it meant that he didn't have to answer John's question. He wasn't sure what to say. The shadows were growing long by the time they reached the village, and everyone came out to see who the visitors were. No one could remember the last time a car had come to their village. 
Pedro felt very important as he stepped out the Land Rover and introduced the Lion researchers to Mr. Massagu and to Issa and Adelia. Beth asked him to watch over the Land Rover while she, John, and Ronaldo talked to the village elders. Pedro was a bit put out that he was not going to be included, but being allowed to sit in the driver's seat, scolding any child who tried to climb on the vehicle, soon made him feel better. He leaned out the window to explain to Enzi and Samuel, Adelie and his little sisters, all about ID pictures, whisker spots, radio collars, and how his drawing had identified the lion who stole his arm. It grew dark. Still, the grown-ups talked. Pedro fell asleep leaning on the steering wheel, and he woke up to the sound of his father's voice. Pedro, wake up, Issa said. Get ready. We're going on a lion hunt. Pedro grabbed his bedroll and his spear from the hut. When he came out again, Issa, John, Ronaldo, and Beth were leaning over a map spread out on the hood of the Land Rover. So, John said, turning to Issa, after it attacked Pedro, the lion headed west. For six miles, I tracked it, and it didn't stop, Issa told them. You must taste very bad, Ronaldo said to Pedro. Pedro hit this lion hard on the head, Issa told them proudly. You stood up to the lion that was chewing on your arm, said Beth. John shook his head. You are something else, Pedro, he said. Where did you find the last tracks, Issa, Beth asked. Here, Issa said. But that was before the rains. He could have gone a long, long way since then. Well, said Beth thoughtfully, Anjani won't go east to his mother's old territory. And the land to the south is flooded from the rains, Issa added. And the north is rocky with not much meat. So west is where we start to look, said John. Okay, let's get going. Operation Find Pedro's Lion. The Land Rover bumped slowly through the grassland and sparse trees, heading west to where Issa had last found any sign of Anjani. Every so often, they stopped to look for tracks and to climb a rock or hilltop to scan for lions sleeping in the shade of the trees on the horizon. Issa told Pedro that the plan the that the plan the villagers and researchers had agreed on was to put a radio collar on Anjani, not to kill him. Ronaldo will use the collar to check where the lion goes, and if it comes toward the village, he will warn village, he will warn us, Issa said. It's a big opportunity for us, Ronaldo explained, to study a lion we know has been a problem in the past. Yeah, John said. We want to see if they can be reformed. But I think you already reformed Anjani when you hit his head, Pedro. Pedro didn't smile. In return for the risk of leaving the lion alive, the researchers were going to help the village to keep safe from lion attacks in the future. We will help build shelters and fences that can keep people and animals safe from lions, Beth said. Pedro listened in silence. What do I get in return for my arm, he thought, if the lion who stole it goes without punishment. Beth leaned around as she drew the Land Rover to a stop. Are you okay, Pedro? Pedro nodded, but inside he told his lion. I'm getting closer, and my spear is here, under my seat, lion. Okay, that's the end of part two. I will be back tomorrow to read part three and to finish up the book. Yeah.